Well, good morning. Um, if you uh, happen not to know it, maybe you're a guest with us. My name is Thomas, and I'm one of the, uh, one of the six pastors here with the church. And uh, as I've had the opportunity to preach lately, we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so uh, we're going to keep on with Ecclesiastes this morning. We'll be in chapter 7. Uh, and with that, let me just say, um, before we get in, into the chapter, let me just say, we obviously can't know with all certainty, what the future holds, right? We can't, we can't know the future with complete certainty. But we can know some things. And one of the things that we can know for certain is that we all are going to die. One day, we are all going to die. And so you know what a bucket list is, right? A bucket list. Um, you're thinking about the fact that one day... You will die, and so some would say, hey, think about that, and man, make a list. Make a list of, of all the things that you want to do, all the things you want to experience, all the things you want to accomplish in this lifetime before you die. So whatever that might be for you, maybe you want to see the Grand Canyon, maybe you want to see the uh, Fiji Islands, maybe you want to go sky, uh, skydiving or maybe hang gliding, whatever it might be for you. Well, Ecclesiastes 7 also, I think, points us to the fact that we should think about the fact that we're all going to die someday. Think about death. The writer would say that that's a good thing for us to do. Think about our death. But as we do, we're not so much encouraged to then kind of make a bucket list, but we are encouraged to, to seriously consider the, the reality and the implications of the fact that we will one day die. Consider that and then make it better. Make the day of your death better than the day of your birth. Make it better. Make the day of your death better. Now I know that sounds weird. Uh, I think that sounds a bit strange anyway. Um, but we'll explore that. Uh, we'll explore what that might mean here as we move through our minutes ahead. So uh, if you have a Bible with you, please open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. If you happen not to have a Bible, you can raise your hand, I think, yeah, and we'll make sure you get a Bible in your hands. But we'll read uh, verses 1 through 6. Uh, before we do that, um, please pray with me again. So Lord, we're thankful for an opportunity to gather together here this morning. And uh, I would just simply ask that you would help us to have uh, clear minds now to hear from you, open hearts to hear from you, um, and just do with us what you know is best for us for building us up. Do we need to be admonished this morning? Do we need to be encouraged this morning? Do we need just help this morning? Whatever it might be, for each of us individually, for each of us, or for us as a church body, whatever it might be, I pray that you would accomplish that in our minutes together now. In Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this is Ecclesiastes 7, the first six verses. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. 
this also is vanity. Amen. So moving into chapter 7 here then, um, do keep in mind the, the last uh, passage that I touched on in my previous message. So that just the last um, part of chapter 6. Chapter 6, uh, verse 12 there again. You can probably still see it uh, close to, obviously, the start of chapter 7. But verse 12 there says, Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Well, those are um, essentially rhetorical questions. Okay? And, and the implied answer is, no one really can know what's really good for us, what's really best for us. And we can't know that because we can't know the future, at least not with full certainty. Only God knows the future, and so only God knows what is best. However, that said, um, in chapter 7, now the writer does go on to suggest that we can know at least one thing with, a, with pretty good certainty. Namely, that we are all destined for death. We can know that. And so the writer is going to string together several little proverbs here in these six verses as well as into the, the rest of the chapter. He's going to string together these little proverbs to help give us some guidance on wise living in light of that fact that we are all destined for death. And I think in verses 1 through 6, the emphasis really lands in verses 1 and 2. And again, I think the emphasis there has to do with living in such a way that our death, our day of death, will be better than our day of birth. So strange as that might sound, let's go ahead and move through these verses here and see what that might mean for us. So verse 1 again. A good name is better than precious ointment. So a good name here, meaning a good reputation. Um, uh, 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 an honorable reputation. A good reputation that is rooted in good character. Okay, so think... Uh, uh, let's say the, the cliche Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, what's she known for? Well, when you think about Mother Teresa, you think about somebody who is, is working, doing good works for the hurting people of the world, for the marginalized people on the, of the world. And so in that sense, she died with a good name. Okay, so think Mother Teresa. Rather than, say, maybe um, uh, a guy by the name of Felix Baumgartner. I don't know how many of you know who he is. Felix Baumgartner um, might be a perfectly likable guy, might be perfectly good. I don't know. I don't know him personally. Um, but he's not really known for being nice or being a good guy. He's really, what he's known for is his life of adventure stunts, basically. So what he's probably best known for is doing this right here. Um, Felix Baumgartner, about four years ago, actually was lifted up into the stratosphere uh, with a helium balloon, basically wearing a spacesuit in a little space capsule, and uh, went up halfway into the stratosphere. That's 24 miles up. It's above the ozone layer. Okay, this is absolutely incredible. You think of an average 747 airliner. Uh, average cruising altitude, I think, is around six or seven miles up. He's 24 miles up. And then he jumped out of that thing, and before he threw his chute open, he broke the speed of sound. He went supersonic. He went to a top speed, free-falling, of Mach 1.25. I mean, there, there are military aircraft that do not go that fast. It's amazing. And uh, just incredible. Something really to be 
congratulated. It's, it's amazing what humans can do um, when we put our minds to it. But that is not being known for a good name. That's not being known for a good name. And a good name, being known for a good name, is better than that. A good name, the writer says, is better than this precious ointment. So um, the precious ointment, that has in mind uh, basically kind of a fragrant cologne, a fragrant perfume, and uh, not bad at all in and of itself, actually a really good thing. Um, Often very expensive, often uh, a sign of prosperity, often used um, in conjunction with really festive and joyful uh, occasions. Uh, Really good, and a good name, the writer says, is better than that. And uh, in other words, I think the point here is that the, the inner heart of a person is far more important than what's on the outside, all right? The real worth of a person is what's in his heart, in the, the character of his heart. That's where it lies. The true worth of a person doesn't lie with uh, breaking skydiving records or the, the real worth of a person doesn't lie with expensive adornment or great achievement, but it is who he is in his heart, a person's character. And I think that being the case, the writer implies here that that's good and we should seek after that. That's something to be sought after, a good name. So again, in in chapter 6, verse 12, he asks the question, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Well, this is. What's good for man is that we would be a people of a good name, a good reputation, of good character. Good reputation based on good character. And what might that look like? What What might orient us to even know what good character is or what a good name is? Well... There's really no uh, higher sense of what a good character is or what a good name is than God himself. God himself, he has character. God himself has a name. So, for example, Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verse uh, 6 and 7. God reveals himself to Moses here, and he proclaims his name to Moses. And it says there, The Lord passed before Moses, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. He said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. That's a good name. Merciful, gracious, patient, loving, faithful, forgiving, Just that is a good name. And of course, with Jesus being himself God, but also being fully human, we see this to perfection. There's no one who walked the earth with a greater good name than Jesus. His is the goodest good name that there is. His is the greatest good name. And, And even as good as something is like this precious ointment, as good as that is, as, as, as joyful as the joy is that, that, uh, with which what that might be represented or, or associated, a good name is better than that. Not so much kind of a reputation for something like daredevil stunts, though fine, perfectly fine in and of itself, but what's better is a good reputation because of one's character. And so verse 1 continues, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. 
Now again, that seems very strange. It seems actually kind of crazy. Um, what on earth, what, what would make the day of death better than the day of birth? Certainly, most people, I think, would think the exact opposite of that. A person's birthday, of course, it's full of joy. It's full of anticipation of all sorts of good, all sorts of potential for good that lies ahead. A person's death, well, all of that is, is over. It's, it's the end. And so that's why we make bucket lists, right? Because we're going to die and the end is coming and we want to do all this stuff before we die. And so you, with death, you've got sadness. With death, you have sorrow and mourning and pain and tears. So how could that be better than the day of birth? Well, I think in light of the previous six chapters of Ecclesiastes, um, the writer really has observed what most of us see all the time. Confusion, frustration, injustice, oppression, perplexity, pain, frustration. All, all these forms of what he would call futility or vanity. Well, at the day of birth, all of that is in front of you. All of that is in front of a person. But at the day of death, all of that is behind a person. It's done. It's over. I think that's one reason why I think that the writer would say that the day of death is better than the day of birth. But keep moving into verse 2. There's another answer here, I think. Verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So the house of mourning here basically has in mind a person's funeral. And in the ancient world of Ecclesiastes, a uh, funeral would often be held in a person's home. Um, it was uh, 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 their, their house. It was a house of mourning in that sense. Often people would come to visit the house over several days uh, before they would actually bury the body. Um, and it is better, the writer says, to be involved in that day of death, to, to be a part of that, uh, be in that house of mourning, because this is the end of all mankind, he says. In other words, when you go to a funeral, you see your end. You see your end. You're reminded that no matter what the circumstances of your life, whether you're a Mother Teresa or you're a Felix Baumgartner, you're going to die. Doesn't matter if you have a bucket list or not have a bucket list, you are going to die. We can't know for certain what the future holds in every respect, but we can know for certain, or at least a funeral reminds us of one certainty, I should say, and that is that we will all die. And uh, with verse 1 again then, the day of death will be better than the day of birth. And that's especially true for the one with a good name, the one with a good reputation because of his character. At birth, a newborn is only potential, right? All the circumstances of life, only potential. No way to know if what lies ahead is good. No way to know if what lies ahead is going to be good for him or even good for his society. Don't, we don't know how to know that. But at death, for the person who dies with a good name, that good name represents a life, uh, a culmination of a life that that uh, is a net good for his society. He leaves the world in a better place because he plowed through all the futility of life and he left a trail of mercy. He left a trail of grace. He left a trail of love and, and faithfulness and patience and, and justice. And man, if those character traits are on your bucket list, 
you are going to leave the world in a much, much better place. You will die having lived a full life, a truly full life. And what was only potential at the day of your birth will be actualized reality on the day of your death. And, and with verse, uh, verse 2 again, and also with verse, with verse 3. Funerals are good, the writer says. They're, they're good with their mourning, with their sorrow, with the sadness. All of this related to the mourning of a person's death. That's all good, the writer says. It's all good because it gives us a chance to lay death to heart, as verse 3 says. Lay death to heart. It gives the chance for a person to to look in the mirror, so to speak. It gives a chance for us to do something that the writer says is wise. Namely, look at that casket and, and see it as a mirror. You look at that casket and what you see is your end. Your personal, individual end. It's a mirror. Consider seriously the reality and the implications of the day of your death. Lay it to heart. Pull your head out of the sand uh, and lay it to heart. Lift your head above your fleeting season of life, whatever it might be in, and ask yourself, am I ready to die? It seems like a cheesy question at one level. Am I ready to die? Ask yourself that question. Think about your own day of death so that you can make wise choices throughout the remaining days that you do have, and with those wise choices, build a good name. Death is going to be the end of all of us. So are you living in such a way that your day of death will be better than your day of birth? In other words, are you building a good name? Is your name gracious and merciful and loving and forgiving and patient and just and faithful and, and on and on? Is that your name? Um, I saw a, a tattoo on the... Actually, as I was preparing this message, I saw a tattoo on the shoulder of a gal in a coffee shop. And the tattoo said, Live as if you'll die today. Live as if you'll die today. Uh, meaning, I think, make it count. Make life count. Live it to the full. Well, I think the Bible would agree, sort of, depending on what you mean. Live it to the full. Yes, make life count. Make that bucket list and check those boxes. But not so much boxes like break skydiving records, but boxes like be merciful, be gracious, be just, be loving, and so on. Make your life count by building a good name for the day of your death. That's what wisdom does. All these little all these little proverbs that we, we have here, they're, they're meant to convey wisdom. And this is what wisdom does. You know what wisdom is? W wisdom is basically the right um, application or the right use of knowledge. Okay, wisdom. It's, it's knowing facts. It's understanding those facts in their proper context. And it's dealing with those facts accordingly. Uh, it's skill in using knowledge. That's wisdom. And... Uh, these little proverbs are meant to convey wisdom to us. Ron Christensen, our own Ron Christensen, I don't think he's here today, but he gave me this, hey, uh, he gave me this analogy 
uh, once that I think is very helpful related to knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge um, says that a tomato is a fruit. Right? That's true. That's a fact. Scientifically speaking, a tomato is a fruit. Okay? And so knowledge says that tomato, a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom says don't put the tomato in a fruit salad. Right? Makes sense? Not a good use of that knowledge that, of, of tomato being a fruit. Well, knowledge from a funeral tells us that we are going to die. Knowledge from a funeral tells us that. Wisdom puts that knowledge of death to use in the right way. Okay, and, and, and that is, it's not in some morbid, depressing introspection. It, it's not in some sort of self-indulgent pursuit of just as many experiences as you can possibly have. But using that knowledge of death to spur on this robust life that amounts to a good name in the end. Full of mercy and justice and grace and so on. The alternative to that is mentioned, I think, in verses 3 to 6. The alternative to, to, to that wise use of knowledge is a life that's given up to laughter. It's a life that's given up to feasting, to this, to this, uh, this, this mirth and, and, and the songs of fools. It's either, and all of that means either you're sticking your head in the sand and you're just not thinking about death at all. You just want to kind of avoid the subject, sticking your head in the sand. Or it's to try to cover it up. Just try to cover it up, drown it out, living this life. Just, man, just thinking moment to moment, just trying to achieve as much fun as you can possibly have in every moment, just trying to achieve as much superficial happiness as you can possibly achieve. That's what's going on there. So don't misunderstand. Um, the writer to, the, to Ecclesiastes here, or the writer of Ecclesiastes, I should say, not a killjoy. Uh, in fact, he's, he's very much commended enjoyment. He's done that several times already. He's he plainly commends enjoyment. He's done it at a few points already in the previous chapters. Enjoy life, he would say. Eat, drink, find enjoyment in life. Eat, drink, find enjoyment in all of the good gifts that God gives you. Do that for sure. And he's not contradicting himself here. But with this laughter, with this feasting, what he has in mind with these verses is basically frivolity. Being frivolous. Don't use that word very much, right? Frivolous. Being frivolous. In other words, you're just moving through life. No serious purpose. Uh, no, no real serious sense of purpose or value. Basically sort of a self-centered, self-indulgent, carefree life. Not really concerned with the big matters of life, the issues of life. Certainly not really caring much about death and so on. And, and, and the, the, with the house of mirth here in verse 4, or the song and the laughter of fools in verses 5 and 6, all of that probably has in mind basically just this huge party where it's just wild and self-indulgent gluttony and drunkenness, and that's symptomatic of a person with their head in the sand. It's, that's symptomatic of a fool. He's either just flat out unconcerned about the serious matters of life, or he just wants to avoid them, wants to avoid any amount of responsibility related to that, just wants to eat and drink and forget all of it, okay? So, begs the question, where is your heart? Where is my heart? Is your heart in the house of mourning? Is your heart in the house of mirth? Which house is providing you counsel? 
Which house are you listening to? Are you, are you living to avoid death? Or do you live very much laying death to heart, as the writer says? Are you living, in other words, prepared to die? Are you living prepared to die? Not because you've checked off all these boxes of a bucket list, but because you have built a good name of grace and of justice and of love and in faithfulness and more. So you might hear it said, seize the day, right? Carpe diem, live, live in the moment. Well, again, yeah, sort of, sort of. Yes, live in the moment in the sense of enjoyment in the moment, enjoy the moment, absolutely eat, drink, enjoy the moment for, for, for the gift that it absolutely is, but verse 5 mentions the rebuke of the wise. The rebuke of the wise. Um, so don't get scared by that word rebuke. In this day and age, that sounds harsh, and we don't want to hear that word. Don't get scared off by it. Basically meaning, you know, just think constructive criticism uh, or constructive feedback, maybe. Um, rebuke. It's intended to build us up. It's intended to correct some behavior that might not be very helpful for us, wants to build us up, make us better. And the rebuke of the wise here is essentially to say, yes, do enjoy the moment. Do enjoy that moment, but don't, don't live there. Don't live in the moment. Don't, don't dwell there. Don't be consumed by that moment as if that moment is all that matters in life. But consider the fuller scope of your life. Consider the, the, the full scope of your life and make that count. Make that count for what will be a good name um, in the end. In other words, live now in the moment with the end in view. You're living now in the moment, enjoying the moment now very much with the end in view. But the song of fools, on the other hand, the the songs of fools are going to say, hey, you only do have today, so live it up. Have as much fun as you can possibly have. Eat till you burst. Drink till you're drunk. Go absolutely nuts. You don't even know about tomorrow and uh, what you do now. You know what? It won't even impact tomorrow. Doesn't matter. Don't listen to that message, the writer is saying. Because, from verse 6, as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. As the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. So think of uh, crackling thorns as a source of fuel to boil water in a pot. Crackling thorns, they flame up quickly, they, 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 burn, they burn bright, they make all kinds of noise, They're, they get hot, but then they snuff out r- really pretty quickly. And in fact, they don't really have any, any ability to, to actually sustain a kind of heat that would actually uh, help boil any water or cook any food. And I think any of us who have done any kind of camping maybe can, can picture this. You think about um, uh, grabbing some dead uh, pine needles maybe, throwing those on the fire. They can be helpful to get a fire starting. They, they light up quick. They, they make a lot of cool, crackling noise. But we, but we know we've we got to have something more than pine needles in the fire to really keep that fire going. Well, likewise, all of this frivolous partying in the house of mirth, hey, it's going to flame up quickly, uh, really bright, really loud. It's going to be really exciting, draw all sorts of attention. But ultimately, it really does kind of flame out quickly. Ultimately, it's, it's going to come to a quick end without having really produced anything of any lasting value. 
It can't provide any lasting fuel that will sustain a good name throughout life that will end as a good name in the day of death. Might be exciting in the moment, absolutely, but it can be very distracting from considering life's most important things, especially that we would be prepared to die. So the point again um, is that we would listen to this wise man, we'd hear his rebuke. Actually, in this case, we would hear the writer. He is the wise man talking to us. And he says, hey, live in the moment in view of the end. Consider the scope of your whole life and build the life of a good name. Because, in fact, you will die. And how you live your life moment to moment is going to impact the day of your death. It's going to impact whether or not the day of your death could be said to be better than the day of your birth. So make your life one that leaves behind a trail of grace and mercy and justice and more. So make it better. Make it better. Make the day of your death better than the day of your birth. I think that's the implied thrust of these six verses. And for the writer here in Ecclesiastes, that's a here and now proposal. Okay, he's not thinking about eternity. He's not thinking about any sort of life after death. He's most likely thinking about right now today and the years we have between now and when we will in fact die. Make that count by building this good name that's going to be honored at death. This good name that will be honored for, uh, for, 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 for being a life of grace and mercy and, and so on. For that, for that person, he leaves a, the world in a, a better place. And for that person, death will be better. Even for you and me. If all we thought about life was right now, this moment, and what we have between now and when we die. If that's all we're thinking about, and we built a good name in that, our death would be better than our birth. Because for the person with that good name, boy, you're at birth and all you have to look forward to is a bunch of futility. All the pain, the heartache, the, 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 the confusion, the perplexity, the pain, the tears, all of that, that's ahead of you. But at death, it's all behind us. It's all death. And in that sense, it really would be better than the day of our birth. But really, there is a much bigger picture to consider here than just this life between now and when we die. Really, from beyond the writer's perspective. From beyond what the writer probably is thinking. But from the whole Bible, we know some things. We know that life does not actually end in death. We know that the fullest life actually lies beyond death. We know that uh, that, 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 that preparing for death has, uh, isn't so much about having a good name for when we die, but it's being prepared uh, to actually step into eternal life beyond death. And from the Bible, we know, actually, that there really is no level of, of goodness in our name. There's no level of character in our hearts that could guarantee a good name for us on the day of our death. For that, we actually cannot rely on any so-called goodness in ourselves. Any, any so-called character in ourselves. We can't rely on it. Because from God's perspective, which is what ultimately matters, from God's perspective, 
We've all sinned and we have all fallen far short of any of God's standards. His standards for mercy, his standards for justice, his standards for love, his standards for faithfulness, and so on. We've fallen so far short. And so at one level, this talk of, of a good name by the writer here in Ecclesiastes, it's all relative, okay? It's, it's relative to here and now, from person to person, it's relative. But by God's standards, we are nowhere near as merciful, as just, as loving, as faithful, as forgiving, as we ought to be, as he demands that we be. Even Mother Teresa, even Mother Teresa's greatest goodness could not win God's favor. Even from one perspective, even Mother Teresa, God could look at Mother Teresa and say, not good, not a good name. Imagine that. Mother Teresa, not a good name. Because she's not perfect. She's not perfect. In fact, there's only one person who's perfect. You know who I'm thinking about. There's only one person who's built a, a, a perfectly good name. Only one person who's won the favor uh, of God, and that is Jesus. That's Jesus. And because God so loved the world, he gave Jesus to live that perfect life. He gave Jesus to die with that good name, in a sense, so that any of us who will trust in him for it, we have forgiveness of our sins, we have favor of God himself. So Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve because of our lack of goodness. He takes that for us, and we get from him his perfect record of goodness. In a sense, our not-so-good name is nailed to the cross with Jesus. We get Jesus' good name uh, in return. That's a pretty good exchange. That's a pretty good exchange. And if you believe that, and please be encouraged this morning if you believe that, because let me tell you, if you believe that, then for you, you, for you, really, truly, the day of your death will be better than the day of your birth. I can tell you that with all certainty, that if you are united to Jesus by faith, your best days are ahead of you. I can tell you that with certainty. Now, I have no idea what will happen after you leave this service to when you die. I can't tell you with any certainty what's going to happen there. But I can tell you that when you die, then mourning, sadness, tears, pain, confusion, injustice, all these forms of futility will be forever behind you. And, and you truly will have experienced the worst of life. The worst really will be over. And in fact, with the very worst of life that you have experienced or may yet experience, you have come as close to hell as you will ever come. You've come as close as you will ever come if you're in Christ. And then through death, then only mercy, only grace, only justice and faithfulness, these are the things that, that wait for you with Jesus and with his people in heaven. Now, there's a built-in warning there, right? You can hear the warning. You can hear the warning. If you're not trusting in Jesus, if you're not trusting in Jesus, then the very best of this life, and man, you might have an awesome life, but the very best of this life will be the closest you ever get to heaven. It will be the closest you ever get to heaven. And I cannot say what will happen between now and when you die. Good or bad, I can't say, but I can say with certainty that when you die, if you're outside of Christ, then 
all of your best days are behind you. And you've got nothing but darkness and more and more sorrow and pain and injustice and tears and confusion and perplexity and frustration coming your way. That's the Bible's perspective on eternal life. So man, we need help. We need help. We need a God who happens to be merciful, who happens to be gracious and loving to help us. And I'm so happy for that. Even in our sins, even in my sins, Jesus offers, or God offers us Jesus. And in Jesus, he offers us a good name. That is ours if we will trust in Jesus for it. That good name of Jesus will be ours, and then the day of our death really will be better than the day of our birth because it will be a stepping off point into this incredible eternity where there's only happiness, there's only clarity, there's only peace with Jesus and with his people forever. If we'll trust in Jesus for that, then that's ours. So amen, amen. We're going to transition here uh, from sermon to celebrate the Lord's Supper.